Well, welcome to the Aspirational Healthcare Podcast. It's my pleasure today to have Dave Chase, one of the pioneers in healthcare innovation in this country, and CEO of the co and co-founder of Health Rosetta with me, and uh, the author of his new book, Relocalizing Health. And I just had the opportunity to read that book. I'm almost done. And it is such a pleasure to welcome you, Dave, to our podcast today. Yeah, looking forward to the chat. You know, love, love the uh, the whole word aspirational healthcare. Um, yeah. I often uh, say when people ask, you know, what we're up to and all that, say, so, well, on our site, what we say is both true and aspirational, yes. um, which is healthcare is healthcare is fixed. Join us to replicate the fixes. So I think it's both, right? It's it's yeah. real, but it's also very aspirational. Well, and, and it's really the Nucus system of care and Dr. Eby's description of their system as being aspirational that really kind of put me onto this word. I love his description of what they built. And so, you know, pushing this country to be aspirational versus deficit-based is really the premise of this whole effort, which is largely the effort of what you've created. I mean, it's, it's very similar. Yep. So Dave, yeah. tell me, first of all, just give us a kind of a little bit of a background of the book and your, you know, your goals to create the book. I'm sure you've been working on it for some time, but talk a little bit about the impetus behind this relocalizing healthcare or health. I love the fact that you don't say healthcare, you say relocalizing yes. health. I love yes. that. Yes, um, and that's key. Um, and <clears throat> that there's, um, it really comes out of, we've been on this journey for a while now. And in that journey, um, you know, there's a lot of backdrop of why even we start on this journey, which we could get into. But once on this journey, I was fortunate to have met and become friends with uh, a guy named Chris Brookfield. Um, most transformative thinker I've met in my career, and that includes Bill Gates. Um, and he actually just came out with um, a uh, field notes from, from system change, a little field guide. Um, and you may recall chapter one, I talked about uh, Chris some. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> you know, the subtitle to the book is, you got it right, like, Relocalizing health, when I say the future of healthcare is local, open, and independent. Yeah. And um, the 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 thing about Chris and his work, uh, to my knowledge, I'm not aware of. He, he doesn't take full credit for this, but he played a very central role in being one of the original social impact investors, you know, in the world. Really? Yeah. And uh, you know, this goes back. 15 years probably now. Um, and uh, his, the organizations that he catalyzed, he came through the investor realm, but he's really more of a system change person. Um, but, you know, it took real capital to lift 150 million people out of poverty. I mean, how many people can, you know, have a connection to that? Pretty yeah. remarkable. That was through uh, microcredit, slum improvement loans, and rural hospital development. And then when he came back to the States, he wanted to focus it on food and health. And uh, that system change model is on a tear in um, the arguably the most important input into the food system, wheat. Um, 
and uh, it, it applies this model, um, which is that local open independent is sort of the essence of it. And, and the, the, to me, kind of the real essence is you find what works like a NUCA model, like a Rosen in Florida, kind of nice, you know, counterbalances, two corner, opposite corners of the country. Yeah. yeah. And the, the premise is people are problem solvers the world over, right? Maybe they don't have a lot of resources to solve their problems, but they're problem solvers. And every problem virtually that we've come up against, there is a solution and actually a pretty good solution. It's just the exception to the rule, like a Nuka, yeah. like a Rosen. Yeah. The real puzzle is how do you massively replicate that? Yeah. Um, and as I looked into this, you know, the many dysfunctions in healthcare and the nature of healthcare, um, uh, it's very local, right? You know, health doesn't start uh, as, you know, the NUCA folks, South Central Foundation, no, right? Health doesn't start in a pill or a hospital, it starts with mom and dad and our home and our neighborhood, and it ripples out from there and all the stuff that you know well from their model. And so I wanted to take the system change model that had proven um, to be so effective in other areas, and we're starting to have success here and share that story. And, and the, the word or the description, not the words that I used to describe what the folks, you know, I've been writing about the, the NUCA model for a decade now. Yeah. Um, and, but they're not the only ones. Um, there's folks in Jan Schopen, Sweden, or you look at the Rosen folks in Orlando. Yeah. I would call what they're doing a community-owned health plan. Mm -hmm. um, and you can, you know, we can unpack those words, but we can also flip those words on their head. Um, and we describe our mission as empowering community-owned health plans. And uh, if you flip those words on their head, that is our healthcare system. We have disempowering Wall Street rented sick care plans. Um, that is what we have. And as a consequence, the things, the many dysfunctions that we have are perfectly rational and logical against a set of, you know, perverse incentives and wrong incentives. And they're great for Wall Street returns, um, <laughs> but that's really not what our, our community is about. And if you look at successful social movements, um, particularly in the face of entrenched interests that exist here, regulatory capture exists from the mayor through the president and everything in between. Um, the only way you have success in these social movements is a grassroots movement that's kind of cause-oriented um, and a long-term orientation. Yeah. And, you know, in the case of, just to give you an idea of how to overcome entrenched interest. In India, one of the states literally outlawed microcredit because it was threatening to the banks. Even though these people were largely unbanked, they wanted to control finance. Um, so they outlawed it. Well, too late. At, in that one state, there were already 400,000 borrowers. Um, and so they marched on the state capital in India and turned that around. Hmm. And so that's the type of thing that when you have enough people in enough places, even with all the power, you can't stop it. 
you know, because it is, if you look at what we call the health Rosetta, it wasn't like, you know, I climbed to the top of some mountain and dreamt this stuff up. It was just synthesizing what we were observing. Yeah. Um, if you were to put that into a pill, if you were to, or the NUCA model, if you were to put the NUCA model into a pill, it would be the blockbuster drug of the century. There's no drug that's ever come along that has that kind of health impact. Yeah. Um, and it's like finding the cure for cancer. And once you see that, who's going to keep the cure for cancer from other people? Yeah. Yeah. It's like people just don't know. Right. And if and they just, did, they would jump towards it. Yeah. I mean, that's that yeah. was, I kind of joked early on. Uh, on this. I say, hey, it's just a marketing problem, right? You have dystopia here, which is our status quo. And, you know, I wrote a chapter in that, the first book, CEO's Guide to Restoring the American Dream, um, that we've gone to war for less than what the healthcare system has done to America. Like it is dystopian and it's gotten worse during COVID. Yeah, yeah. By comparison, when you look at the new commodity, you look at like my parents' experience with Iora, you look at Rosen, it's utopia by comparison. You know, it's just a marketing problem, right? Everybody yeah. would want that if yeah, they knew if that. They knew. And, that's the, and that's the other thing with social movements. If you look at the ones that have succeeded, more often than not, there's a catalytic media moment where there's this grassroots movement off the radar. Um, and then at a certain point, flashpoint, right? Selma, um, you know, supersize me, food ink, right? Whatever these yeah. these things that then raise the public consciousness um, to like enough, right? We got to change. And I believe absolutely there's no greater immediate threat to America than our status quo healthcare system. It's that. I couldn't agree with you more. Well, and I love the fact that your first book was a guide for CEOs. And let's talk a little bit about yeah. the role that a CEO plays in this whole healthcare system because they're the purchaser. And, yeah. and I love the fact that your first book was all about CEOs wake up. Yeah. There's yeah. a better way to buy a better product at a better price. So why, you know, it's about giving the CEO, the primary buyer, a heads up. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the chapter that out of that book that probably resonated more than any other was you're in the healthcare business, whether you like it or not, whether you like it or not. Yeah. Here's how to make it thrive. Um, and so you could debate whether there should be an employer based healthcare system, um, but it is there. Right. And it's, <laughs> it's very entrenched. Um, and so there's a real question that the CEO has to make on this. Um, do they want to play offense or defense? Um, most of them at best, they're most of them aren't even playing the game. They're just, they just forfeited the game and yep. said, here's our corporate unlimited credit card and, <laughs> you know, healthcare system, go party on our yeah. unlimited corporate credit card. Um, and the people that they've entrusted it with have exactly the polar opposite objectives to what they have, exactly. which is they want to run up the tab as high as possible. Like, you know, Bill Gates gives me his card and he's like, party <laughs> on. Like, I'm not worried about ordering Dom Perignon or caviar or whatever is the most expensive thing on the menu. Yeah. Uh, and so they can, um, so they largely forfeited the game, but then they have a, a decision to play offense or defense. 
And I wrote about, you probably remember in the, the book, an example would be IBM, where they played offense, right? They actually, they had both a competitive challenge and I think a belief um, that the competitive challenge was they were competing increasingly with, you know, Infosys and Tata and these other lower cost um, service providers, and they weren't going to beat them on price. So they wanted to beat them on a high performance workforce. If you want to win on a high performance, high availability workforce, you have to have a healthy, engaged workforce. And it's not a state secret that there's no well-functioning healthcare system in the world not built on proper primary care. So they invested in primary care and mental health. And so that they played offense and they actually believed and acted on what every CEO says, which is employees are our most valuable asset. And if you actually believe that employees are your most valuable asset, how can you fund what has driven the largest legal wealth transfer in the history of America from the working and middle class to a bloated healthcare system that's underperforming? And your dollars have funded and fueled the opioid crisis and increasingly the rising benzos crisis. That's, that's your legacy. Yeah. Right? Like when I'm feeling salty, right? That is their legacy <laughs> of their healthcare investment. Um, and we just, you know, COVID obviously exacerbated this, um, but, you know, the largest opioid overdose deaths happened last year, really? right? You, it's not over, right? Obviously COVID made it worse. Other factors have come in, but if you look at the, the, you know, I, the other book we haven't mentioned, I wrote is called the opioid crisis wake up call looks at the healthcare system through the prism of the opioid crisis and the, the, uh, the, you know, save you time reading it. Um, the upshot is the opioid crisis is not an anomaly. It is our healthcare system. And if you look at the 12 major drivers of the opioid crisis, 11 of the 12 major drivers, the employer, the CEO who's writing the check, so to speak, is the key unwitting enabler. Yeah. That's the, and I make the case on that. I think it's a well, um, you know, argued case why that is. And so that's obviously none of them want that. Oh, no. Um, but, it's totally, yeah, it's not purposely done. Yeah, no, it's, it's not. It's like and you said, they, they, they've resigned themselves from the game. I think yeah. I mentioned to you, I get in front of a lot of CEOs through Vistage. Yeah. And I get to spend three or four hours talking about this problem. And when yeah. I ask them, what do they want from this major spend? They look at me like, what do you mean? I get to say, yeah, you're the customer. Yeah. I, I don't feel like the customer. No, no. What do you want? It's like, I've never thought about that before. You mean I get to think about what I want from yeah. all this money I spend on health insurance? Yeah. And it's just, it's just, a, it's oblivious to them. In most cases, yeah. they have never thought about it. And then when you ask them whether they've been aligned the system to work for them, to give them what they want, once they decide what they want, no, never. It's like, yeah, you're the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is the other part. And this is, this is an unfortunate reality, but I believe it is the reality. Um, there, the other part of, you know, if you want to just stay on defense that's real is if you, it's interesting, there's so much noise in the media 
and there's things going on in healthcare, da da da, that there is a collection of new laws and regulations that have gone into effect fully in the last four weeks. Some yeah. were going in before. Section but if you look at that collection of new laws as one, it's the biggest change to employer healthcare since 1945. It's bigger than the ACA. Yeah. Um, and if you look at a key thing that we, we are very focused in on, and frankly, we're the model for it, is about broker compensation. Yeah. Um, and the, the level of extreme conflicts of interest and lack of disclosure is at the heart of the dysfunction. And so the, the new law is modeled after what happened in the pension and retire, you know, 401k space, 2011, 2012, around similar issues, around broker compensation and misaligned interest and all that. And if you look at what that unleashed, that then unleashed class action lawsuits around ERISA fiduciary duty to get kind of wonky, right? This is the law that regulates employer healthcare, right? Been around since the Ford administration. It is now taken really seriously in the retirement space, largely because of this. It triggered class action lawsuits, multiple class action lawsuits, including one that's gone all the way to the Supreme Court and the employer lost unanimously at the Supreme Court. Total game changer for the retirement space. That is now coming to healthcare. And so do you want a legal target on your back? And by the way, ERISA fiduciary duty is not covered in your directors and officer um, ability coverage insurance. Um, it is a you, you can have personal legal exposure on that. That will be a big game changer. So much better to be like IBM or Rosen Hotels, right? They've Rosen Hotels has cumulatively saved over a half a billion dollars versus other employers that are like them. And they're only 5,000 employees. Imagine if you're even bigger. Yeah. Um, and they've done that while offering the best health, best benefits package, not health benefits, best benefits package of any company in the country, as far as I know. And have their used their, what we call, what we've defined as our purpose. We call it the health Rosetta dividend which is premised on the reality that we're already investing more than enough money to not only fund a world-class healthcare system, but to fund and restore funding to what drives 80% of health outcomes. And that's the other thing I would talk to the CEOs, like, why are you spending 90% of your dollars on what drives 20% of health outcomes, mm -hmm. right? 80% um, of health outcomes come from these other things, which you can impact like Rosen, right? So not only for their own workforce, but also their community. What they offer healthier food. They offer free college education for the employee and their children. Then they went out in their community, did the same thing, invested in kids in education with just 5% of what they'd saved benchmarked against their peers. And that led to 80% reduction in crime. High school graduation rates, you know, some years it's 100% virtually doubling, um, incredible human impact yeah. in a very challenged community. 
Um, and guess what? They're in a high turnover industry, the yeah. hospitality industry, and yeah. their turnover, unsurprisingly, is one sixth of their competition. And you know, now we're in this great resignation, right? That yeah. you're about. And it's really high in hospitality and it's high in some other industries too. Um, they're in a great position. Who doesn't want to work at an employer like that, where they now have this incredible health benefits package, they get college paid for, healthy food, they're impacting the community. Like it's just an amazing thing. And it's and it's not some flash in the pan. They've been doing it for 30 years. Right. Well, and that's really one of the very first questions that I wanted to post to you is how do we get business leaders to actually identify what their business objectives are yeah. and then align the system to help them re to reach that? So is this new law and the fiduciary responsibilities and the possible risks one of the things that's going to wake up CEOs to this, what would seem to be intuitive with every yeah. other part of their business to simply approach healthcare with the same one-on-one acumen they do every other part of their business. Is this one of the things that could really spark an interest in, in, in this area? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the big four risk manager, risk management practice leaders calls it the largest undisclosed risk they've ever seen in their career. Um, and but then if you just bring it down to financials, right? Of there's a bunch of reasons to do it beyond the financials including what we talked about earlier, much better health outcomes for your workforce. Um, and I, I really like to lead with that. But let's just get down to brass tacks. Um, if you look at one of the case studies in that book is Pacific Steel and Recycling. Um, five years ago, uh, this is about a 700-person uh, manufacturer and recycler out of um, Great Falls, Montana, got people in nine states, 40 some locations. Um, they were spending over $8 million on health benefits um, five years ago. Last couple of years, even though they had a bunch of cancers one of those years, they are spending three and a half million dollars and benefits significantly improved. Um, and a big part of that was that a great benefits advisor and like you were just saying, they just applied the same discipline they do to every other business. Um, and, and just to finish the financial thing, you know, I talked to the CFO. They're, you know, they're a private company, but I, I said, yeah, yeah, I'm guessing you're about a $200 million a year company. He said, yeah, you're in the right universe. Um, and I was like, what, what would you have had to increase top line sales revenue for a slow growth, low margin manufacturer? Um, to have the same profit impact as what happened in health benefits. By the way, the trend is they should have spent $10 million last year. And they spent um, three. Yeah, that's a $7 million dollar difference. For a, for a low margin you know, business, yeah. he said we would have had to increase top line sales at least 25 to 30%. That's not that's easy to do, right? And so it's a real compelling financial case. There's a compelling case that they're they're failing in their shareholder fiduciary duty to not do this. Um, and, and so, but it's just, there's such a positive story in this. Um, and you also have, you know, kind of with this great resignation, it's really an interesting time for a number of reasons. One of which is 
a generational tipping point. If you look at the health plans that are pervasive in America, they were built and optimized around the greatest generation and the boomer generation for yeah. logical reasons, right? That's when they were on the rise. Well, the largest generation in history aren't the boomers, they're millennials. And the oldest millennials are in their early 40s. And does anybody think that our status quo health plans, which were designed for the era of acute disease and communicable disease, are optimized for millennials and in time when chronic disease and mental health are the primary challenges? There's like nothing that is optimized. Yeah, there's some band-aids they'll throw on. Oh, we've got EAP or we've got this, you know, teledoc thing or whatever where you can talk to somebody. And, and not that all those things are bad, but the bottom line in our view is um, other than the clinicians, this Gordian knot designed by Rube Goldberg that we call our healthcare system, there's virtually nothing to save about it other than the clinicians. It needs a reset. Um, and when you, you've talked to the NUCA model folks, right? They didn't say, hey, let's take this miserably performing system and make it 5% better. They did a total, total rebuild. Yeah. yeah. Total and, transformation. Yeah. And they did, you know, going back to the earlier point, you know, they're not an employer, but like when we talk about employers, um, every other business to me, like, you know, I'm near Seattle, so we'll use Boeing as an example. Like Boeing didn't say when they were going to do the Dreamliner, hey, aviation industry, bring us your parts and we'll pay, pick a plane. We'll put together a plane. Um, they, of course, they didn't say that. They said, this is what we're going to, this is our design points. We need these wings. We need these jet engines, da, da, da. You know, if you want to compete, come compete. Yeah. And they defined it. And that's what a Pacific Steel did is if you believe, as they believe that employees are the most valuable asset, it is a privilege to serve this most valuable asset, healthcare industry. And we want to purchase from you. And here's the way we, what we want to purchase and how we want to purchase. And if you want to play, wonderful, play. Well, and, and, I, and I love the fact that you talk about, ask your employees what they want. Yeah. Hold some focus groups. Ask the customer what they want, just like Nuka did 20 years ago, yeah. and now build something that meets the customer's needs. It's like yeah. business 101. Yeah. Yet business leaders never think about that customer when they go to spend money on health insurance. It's like they need to ask the customer. And how do we drive CEOs to say, just yeah. ask your customer what they want, and then let the system be focused on meeting the needs of the customer, not the institutional medicine. Yeah. And that's where, again, you can play offense or defense. If you want to win in this marketplace and it's a, it, there's a war for talent um, and it's and even if there wasn't, turnover is costly. And, you know, I'd also ask CEOs like, do you plan on having your employees longer than 12 months? Most do. <laughs> then why are you on this silly 12 month renewal cycle? Yeah. It's an incredibly deft move by the carriers to put them on this forced 12 month cycle march. It's just brilliant, right? Because yeah. if you raise an issue, then what they do is, is they then say, oh yeah, we, we got, we got it. We got a solution for you. And we got, oh, we're working on that. We got this thing, you know, it's gonna come in the next year. And then 
people get distracted and then say, oh, well, it's too late for this year. Let's yeah. take it next year. Um, and they just do that over and over. And if you look at these calcified hairball hair, you know, health plans that we have, they just put Band-Aid on top of Band-Aid on top of Band-Aid. Mm-hmm. Um, like we've, you know, our, we know that we've destroyed primary care in this country. And we know that, as we talked about earlier, there's no well-functioning healthcare system world not built on proper primary care. Right. Yet much of what exists in a health plan is just a Band-Aid on broken primary care. And it's like, hey, how about a radical idea, which Nuka did, Rosen did, many others, how about we just fix primary care? Like not easy, but not that hard either. And, well, and, and, and to your point, if business leaders really recognize what you're trying to lay out in your book, they would yeah. say, I'm going to stop spending all my money over here in yeah. buying a broken healthcare system through a medical plan. Yeah. I'm going to take some of that money and put it in primary care. Yeah. They look that- employees. I'm going to give you money specifically for a redesigned primary care. Yeah. And I can't force you to use it, but you know what? It's a whole lot better for you. And you don't get the money if you don't use it. In other words, you only get the money if you're willing to go have the right kind of primary care. Yeah. And the the good news, you know, in air quotes is we waste half of every dollar we spend in healthcare. You know, that's PwC, Institute of Medicine, well-documented. Just as a side note, what we waste conservatively in healthcare would be the 11th largest economy in the world, larger than Russia, the entire economy. <laughs> that. We yeah. And so it is very easy to save the money if you, and, and you, know, one, you know, there's a few things we believe that most people don't yet understand. Um, you know, one, we already talked about, healthcare is fixed. You know, there's, the solutions are proven, it's just replicating. Another thing that we, um, uh, believe I mentioned is we're already investing more than enough money to have a world-class healthcare system and to fund the things that drive 80% of health outcomes. The other kind of related thing that we believe is healthcare is not expensive. And people are like, what are you talking about? Like, that doesn't make sense. Um, well, if I think of healthcare is what the clinicians deliver to you or me, the clinicians only get 27 cents of every dollar ostensibly spent on healthcare. Sure, there should be a few other expenses, but do we really need to have 73 cents on everything else? And I said, what's expensive, and it's again, well-documented, is profiteering, price gouging, administrative bloat, fraud, and inappropriate treatment, right? And, And the smart employers, choose to minimize or just not participate in those schemes. And that's why a Rosen who's been doing it for 30 years, they're in the most expensive state for healthcare, Florida. 40% of the most expensive hospitals are in Florida. Um, And yet they've done it. And they've done it year after year after year. And a lot of it is just that same, like you're saying earlier, just that same problem-solving mentality that they had in any other area. And we can, you know, I can send you a link of we got a little five-minute video of Mr. Rosen telling about this journey. You can put it in your show notes if you want. Um, and what he did, like he didn't know anything about healthcare 30 years ago. He yeah. just like he didn't like the fact that every year he was paying more and getting less. And it wasn't like his people were some train wrecks physically. And he finally said, 
you know, I'm walking away from that. And that's enough. Yeah. And never look back. Well, and, and let's talk about his focus and Nika's focus on self-care. I love how in your pyramid, you put self-care at the foundation. Yeah. And if you, if, you know, I love what Dr. Eby says about the fact that if you ask anybody, what made up your current health status and how much of it was the healthcare system doing something to you versus what you did to yourself, everyone would say, well, yeah, the majority is what I do to myself. And yet we don't spend very much, and yet they did, on influencing people to take ownership in their health. So talk yeah. about that from your perspective and why you put that at the bottom of the pyramid as a foundation. Uh, one is just, you know, what the people who've been doing it for years and years know. And it's kind of common sense, right? Um, and that's the, you know, Doug Eby, you know, does a wonderful job of explaining this and how, um, you know, the decisions one makes as to whether to take a medication, what to eat, all these other things. Like that's a decision and, and the vast, vast majority of the decisions that are driving outcomes aren't made inside of the walls of a clinic or a hospital. Um, and so that is, is really critical to understand that it's all these other things. And the, you know, the primary caregiver is the self-care and or a family member, right? That's if somebody is you know, in a very unhealthy situation. Um, and so it's that and, and the, you know, kind of related point to what I said around the, um, you know, get off this silly 12 month cycle. You don't have a, a 12 month, um, you know, people plan or financial plan. I mean, you might report once a year, um, but you have a longer term strategy than that is sadly the so-called solution to healthcare spending going up for employers is just to shove it onto the back of the work, the people least able to afford it, right? This 20 years of wage gains has been stolen by the healthcare system. Employers have spent a bunch more money. It's just none of it's gone to the employees. And so you have now have tens of millions of people who are functionally uninsured and they're in survival mode, right? Where Functionally uninsured is when your out-of-pocket responsibility in your health plan in these ridiculous high deductible health plans that are just blunt instruments that not with any thought put to them uh, other than cost shifting. Um, when your life savings are less than your out-of-pocket responsibility, you're functionally uninsured. So you're a bad stub toe away from financial ruin. And yeah. there is a level of anxiety and angst and frustration around that. And it puts you into survival mode. There was a piece that, that I have in the book, you may recall, I pulled out of a Wall Street Journal article that it was data from like 2007 to 2014 uh, around healthcare costs had at a household level had gone up, I think 25%, had to come out of something. So it didn't come out of you know their vacation to Tahiti and Hawaii, it came out of food, clothing, housing, transportation. They're basically, you know, on Maslow's hierarchy, that the base of that, that pyramid, right? And you can't think about self-care until you get out of survival mode, other than just right. basic survival. Um, and so that's a really important thing. And then you can actually have a moment to talk with your health coach or whoever is that person, like, hey, here's, here's, you know, as 
Dr. Eby talks about, you know, the messy human issues, right? That, yeah, uh, I love how he says that. I've got, you know, my job <laughs> sucks disease or my marriage is having a tough time or I've got this, you know, drinking problem or, you know, whatever, right? Um, and there's somebody on your side who can help you solve those issues. And sometimes they're not complicated. Sometimes it might be just figuring out the, the you know, transit system to be able to get somewhere. And you don't need an MD to teach somebody how to use the transit system or how to grocery shop. Um, well, I love how you talk about in your book a number of times that primary care should include these other elements like coaching yeah. and behavioralists and, and that yeah. that's really what primary care should look like. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think you can call it. Yeah, I don't think you can call what we call primary care sometimes in this or mostly in this country, primary care if you can't even get in for a few weeks. Yeah. And then you have seven minutes with your doctor to get in and out. Guess why we have a- Does that mean they click an EMR 120 yeah. times? Yeah. Yeah, those poor docs are spending two hours on administration for every one hour of, of patient time. It's yep. absurd. Yep. And so that- And they don't like it. They don't like it. No, they hate Most it. Most of them are frustrated with it. Yeah, that's why and you see, and it's, it's interesting, you know, it, it doesn't guarantee there's gonna be a positive outcome, but there's been- at least $25 billion of um, IPOs, fundings, and mergers in next generation primary care in the last three years. Um, that is really interesting. For an area that's been a backwater, um, people- Now getting attention. Yeah, because, and often what that is tied to are, um, you know, sort of a modern day take on a Kaiser Permanente or in your neck of the woods, Intermountain Health, Mm -hmm. where it's combining the care and the the coverage um and you know it's we're due for a refresh i mean the if you look at the examples that are held up intermountain's the youngest of those i think it started in 1975 you know kaiser started in like 45 and geisinger started in like 1913. you look at a modern day take on those things where they, there's obviously more technology available. There's different issues today. Um, they don't have the bloat of you know these legacy IT systems and hospitals and all that. Uh, they can run very effectively and are doing amazing things. And if you talk to docs, um, you know that unfortunately have been trapped in this silly fee-for-service system, um, they will say, and it's changed a little bit during COVID, of course, but they'll even before COVID, they'd say, yeah, two thirds of the time, you don't need to come in. I just forced you to come in because that's the only way I got paid, right? We could do it over the phone or email. Who can blame me, right? But the insurance won't pay me unless I bring you in. Yeah, so when you remove those distortions, then you can have a different care model, right? Most of the time, you don't need to come in. Even like in my dad's situation, um, where you know one of the things that happened along that journey was, you know, he fell um, and it happened to be when I was, I would visit him about weekly and uh, I was just on the way and I came to my parents' house, my dad's on the floor. I'm like, hey, mom, what's going on here? You know, um, oh, you know, dad fell and, you know, I, I can't get him up. It's, you know, I don't have the strength to do that. And I'm like, oh, did you call Iora? No, because they were just getting used to it, you know, yeah. and like, it was kind of like, I didn't want to bother them. Like, ah, like, 
This is part of the retraining. Like the, that's what they're there for. And once I, I, I think I texted the doc or the health coach or something, and within two hours we had a, you know, occupational therapy. Actually, a nurse came first, and then within a day there was an occupational therapist, a physical therapist, and then they're kind of you know, suggesting some changes we could make you know to the layout of of things. And he didn't you know, have to go to the hospital. Um, he would have in the old system. Um, and, you know, when it's all said and done, you know, through that five-year Parkinson's journey, uh, I'm pretty sure we saved the taxpayers between a quarter and a half million dollars. And it was way better for him and my mom and us. Um, it's just, it's a much better reflection of our humanity than our current system. Yeah. Well, and, and we've seen, because you are a coaching company, that's what yeah. we've been doing for 25 years, is this partnering with direct primary care practices to offer that coaching in yeah. tandem with them. One of our biggest growing businesses because that's where the need is. Yeah, And, and like you said, there's a lot of investment money going into these subscription-based primary care practices. And when you, yeah. when you include not just the doctor's diagnosis and treatment planning, but you include this influencing, you know, yeah. the idea that Dr. Eby talks about, it's more important that I influence you then I put a bandaid on you. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and how do we get CEOs to see the value of that influence component so that they, when they buy benefits, they include that part and they, and they put an emphasis on, on meeting that part of customers' needs? Yeah, a lot of it is just, you know, it's like really, you know, I, I've been in the tech business and, and I'm sure it'd be true in anywhere, you know, to have business where you just have case studies, success stories, right? We, and you got lots of them in your book. Yeah, there's like, yeah. there's a bunch of them in there. And that's really the thing that when you see like what's happening in say, Northeast Ohio, one of our advisors there, right? He's, you know, the benefits advisors, you know, who, who consult with companies, like they're the most underestimated role probably in the entire US economy. I mean, it's, they are the ones, the benefits brokers who put in the health plans that have enabled the wealth transfer and the opioid crisis and the benzos crisis. The best of them are worth their weight in gold. Yeah. So you have somebody like a Bryce Heinbaugh, who four years ago didn't know any of this stuff, right? It was a, the third party administrator that processed the claims. It's like a guy named Jim Farley. He's like, hey, Bryce, um, have you heard about this, uh, this guy, Dave Chase, and his TED Talk? And he just came out with a book. And Bryce, no, um, but he was kind of hating life with, you know, he was successful financially, but he hated what he was doing, these, what he was doing. Yeah. And, and then he, you know, sort of went through the religious conversion um, of, oh, wow, there's a different model out there. And then, you know, year one, you know, he had one employer, 38 lives, pretty modest, right? Yeah. Next year, you know, handful 535 lives. Last year, about 1,200 lives. And it's now flipped in that uh, community where initially you have this uphill battle trying to convince a CEO or CFO or whoever you should do this. Um, but now you talk to Bryce, he's like, no, I don't get pushback anymore. I talked to somebody and they just now they just want what Bob or Sally have down the, the street. And he's got auto dealers, manufacturers, got county employees, school district employees. And, you know, talk about social determinants of health. 
Um, you know, one of the big things that, um, you know, predicts your sort of success in life and health is where you go with your education. Um, and the school district there, uh, even though that's been in the, uh, a region, you kind of stereotypical Rust Belt, auto industry laden uh, economy, really taken the chin the last 20 years. Yep. Despite that, um, the school levy passed the last 21 years until this past May. Um, you know, again, tough economic times. And, uh, but happily, not happy they didn't pass, because Bryce had put in one of these plans into the school district, in the prior 12 months, they'd saved more money than the entire school levy, right? Oh. And so they didn't have to cut teachers, they didn't have to cut programs, um, cut pay, cut benefits, all these things that's happening around the country to teachers. And guess what? Word spreads, right? Like, wow, this is amazing. Like, and if you're the CEO who's spending 40% less, or you're the superintendent or the school board member, how do you not share that, right? They all want, they just can't keep their mouth shut. And that's, it takes a while to get to that tipping point and it just starts very modestly. Um, but that's well, what I think I, that's what you talked about at the beginning. You know, yeah. what event or accumulation of events is gonna happen to where it does just become the norm. Yeah. You know, where the story, and, and that's, I appreciate you writing the book because it's another catalyst where you've yeah. shared so many case studies to try to have that tipping point to where yeah. I want that too. Why am I doing what I'm doing? I'm buying a bad product at a bad price. I want a better product at a better price. Yeah, and you do have this, this dynamic where it seems safe to do what everybody else has been doing until mm -hmm. it's not, right? You, be, you don't want to become the laggard. I mean, it's kind of scary maybe to be the pioneer for some. The ones who've been the pioneers are doing it because they want competitive advantage. Yeah. Um, so if you want competitive advantage, step up, be a leader there. If you want to wait for a few others to do it, you know, and be an early adopter, but not innovator, fine. But have an explicit strategy. I mean, when, when we go through kind of our own form of coaching, when we're, you know, working on plans with employers in tandem with these accredited benefits advisors, we ask them a number of questions and try to understand their culture and their openness to change. And, you know, the biggest chapters you probably saw in that book is on change management. Yep. Um, but one of the questions we ask is, how are you going to use your, your dividend? How do you use this health Rosetta dividend? And uh, yeah, I, like, I like your term dividend. Yeah. And they're kind of like, they kind of <laughs> give you this head tilt, like, I just hope our increase wouldn't suck as bad as it has every year. <laughs> um, and you're saying there's going to be savings. Like, no, really, there will be, unless you're just incredibly unlucky. Um, and, uh, but you need to have a plan for that. You know, is it just going to go into reserves? You're going to give people bonuses? Are you going to add new benefits? And by the way, when you have a plan for it and you're talking to employers, employees rather, as the employer, uh, that's part of how you paint a picture that's appealing, right? And, and Bryce um, does a wonderful job in his, his employee education things where he, he explains why this wealth transfer has happened. And, and they go from going, okay, every year when I hear about the new health plan, it's, you know, great news, pay more, get less. And this guy is saying it's going to get better. I'm pretty skeptical. 
yeah. right? Um, and but he lays it out, and he you know always brings a stack of books. Sometimes they're mine. Sometimes they're Marty McCary's "The Price We Pray" or Marshall Allen's book, you know, that he came out with. And I'm trying to blank out. Oh, don't pay the first bill or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that then it gets people on your side and they realize uh, what's happening. You know, one of the other case studies in that book that I think is powerful is the school district consortium in Pittsburgh, where, you know, traditionally labor's on one side of the table, management's on the other side of the table. And inevitably they're fighting over health benefits. So it's like one of the big battles. Um, What happened there and what needs to happen more places sooner is they realize, you know what, we're actually, we largely want the same thing. We want good health benefits for our teachers and staff. We want them to get raises and we want smaller class sizes and we want librarians and extracurricular programs. Our common foe is actually the healthcare system, um, sadly. And so, so together. yeah, so they work together. They got a committee, eight people, four management, four labor. If you go and um, <clears throat> sit in one of their sessions, you would think stereotypically that the person that is, or the people driving all the change are the management. No, it's the labor people. Like now that they've seen that they can put more money and more benefits in their members' pockets by being smart about how they spend their healthcare dollars. And in their town, you know, of the Pittsburgh area, there's a notorious price gouger there. And, you know, they have a big marketing name, but they're really not outstanding in that many areas. There's a few areas they are, um, but by and large, they're just really good price gougers. And they've gobbled up a lot of practices. And it was labor who said, we're excluding them from the network. We don't care about the hospital exec's jag that he's driving in his third vacation home. Uh, We care about our members. Um, and so that's a big game change for sure. Nice. Well, they were running out of time. So what I'd love to do is, is there any primary message that we haven't covered that you feel like you want to kind of conclude with? It's a five-step straightforward process to do this. You know, it's on the, if you got the physical book on the back of that book is this five-step process that spells out local. It's not as complicated as you, as you think. If you look at those five steps, four of the five steps are invisible to the member. So if you're worried about how are my employees um, going to do that, with the exception of one, and it's clearly a positive, and we talked about it, add great primary care. And the first, first step is learn how to be liberated from the status quo. It's just a mindset shift. Like as long as you think, Healthcare is like Middle East peace, like it's broken, it seems unsolvable. Yeah, it'll never be fixed. You're you're right if you believe that, um, but you don't need to. And then the second piece, which we haven't talked about, um, the other pieces are about the care. But the second piece is kind of the master key that unlocks the other doors. And people take the legal documents that underpin health plans as oxygen in the air. They don't think about them. And what I would say is, um, think about it this way. The healthcare system, um, as I think I mentioned earlier, fifth largest economy in the world, any nation, torture this nation metaphor, any nation's got laws. 
Well, the laws of this nation we call the US healthcare system are codified in these legal documents that underpin every health plan. And there's three buckets. There's vendor agreements, like who processes your claims. There's provider agreements, you know, how much you pay a hospital for, you know, a shoulder surgery or whatever. Um, and then the third bucket in the employer arena is called summary plan documents. It's basically the trust, the health plan is a trust, there's trust documents. And these contracts, these legal documents, these contracting norms and legal norms have normalized deviance in the extreme level. This is the master key that unlocks the other doors. You can't do a lot of these things and get the benefit if you don't look at those agreements. That's what we help people do is look at those agreements. It goes back to that procurement mindset. Don't take the PBM agreement, this pharmacy benefit manager agreement, where they've generated dozens and dozens of revenue streams for themselves. Most employers think they have one or two. Um, you don't have to take that. And in fact, there's, a, there's a three big players in that arena. Even one of those big three players that have run amok, you can get a good price out of them if you know how to procure right. If you don't, of course, they will fleece you. Um, and these are the biggest companies in America. Like if not to let pharma off the hook, but there's not one pure pharma company in the Fortune 50. The only pharma company in the Fortune 50 is J&J, &J, which has other businesses besides pharmaceuticals. Um, there's three PBMs in the Fortune 50. These are the largest companies in the world that are running amok. Um, and you don't have to um, play by their rules. Um, but if you do, you will get taken to the cleaners and you don't have to change the formulary. You don't have to change where people get, pick up their medications. If you do, there's more opportunity. Don't get me wrong. Um, but that is the type of thing where it's boring. Nobody's paying attention to it, but make no mistake that those contracting, those legal documents, that is actually what codifies the trillion and a half dollars we waste every year. That's the only way it's allowed to happen. And so you just don't have to play in that. The contract is an agreement between two parties and you are signing, this goes back to those legal documents codify you giving the unlimited corporate credit card to the healthcare industry to run up as big a tab as they want. Thanks. Thank you, Dave. I appreciate your time. I love your enthusiasm and your passion and the efforts that you are making and have made for years to, to yeah. move this enormous industry. So kudos to you. Well done. Well, and and thanks is, for being time available today to, to do this podcast. Absolutely. And it is an absolute joy to work with employers who wake up and say, I want something better for my employees. They are true game changers in our community. Yeah. Um, and you know, if you want to leave a legacy as a CEO, tackle this area because you can not only help your company, but your entire community as we've seen. Great concluding remarks. Dave, have a great day. And thanks again for the time you've taken. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye now.